0: Heart disease is no laughing matter, but could a good guffaw be part of the answer? Why, with all our accumulated knowledge and sophisticated medical interventions, does heart disease remain the number one cause of death in the United States? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to Reach MD Book Club, the channel for medical professionals. And with me today is Dr. Michael Miller. Dr. Miller is professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, an interventional cardiologist, and past president of the American Society of Preventive Cardiology. He has also recently written, with Catherine Knepper, a popular book called Heal Your Heart, The Positive Emotions Prescription to Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Miller.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: What made you decide to write this particular book, and who is it meant for?
1: Well, you know, Dr. Pickard, we've known, all of us in practice for a number of years, have seen patients who have sometimes present with disorders and symptoms that are really hard to pinpoint except to believe that stress played a component in the role and leading to their disorder or disease process. And and so the basis for this is having seen a number of patients over the years, some of whom had really very little of the known risk factors for heart disease or did have risk factors, but on top of that had stress that sort of put them over the edge. And and it really uh, identified to me something on the order of stress as an important component of both promoting the disease process and then tipping some folks over.
0: So you'd consider it a risk factor. And if that's the case, how does one measure this?
1: You know, this is so difficult. This is that big black box, right? Because you can measure cholesterol and blood pressure, glucose. So those are very quantifiable. But if you think about it, First, stress is, even though it's an unknown factor because it's so hard to quantify, in some sense it really isn't because the patient normally runs a systolic blood pressure of 120 and then when he or she is put under undue stress, that blood pressure is magnified to a level of 140. Or for other examples, their glucose is elevated, they put on weight, and their lipids become more abnormal. It turns out that stress in a way is a unifying factor because an individual who is under a lot of stress tends to fall off the wagon with respect to having other cleanly identified factors. So in the past, it's been really hard to quantify stress. Nowadays, if we're not going to use kind of a global assessment by just asking the patient, and there are some questionnaires that can assess to some degree hostility and anger measurements. But beyond that, if we were just going to look at stress, we can look at perhaps a more long-term effect, and that is aging of our blood vessels. And some of the things we now do here at the University of Maryland is to do pulse wave velocity. And and that is essentially evaluating the stiffness of one's arteries and non-invasively. So that's one tool that we can use to kind of get a handle as to perhaps if somebody has premature aging, if you will, of their blood vessels.
0: You talk in your book about a positive emotions prescription. I remember in practice writing things on a prescription pad that had nothing to do with drug therapy. Often they were clues that I thought would help a patient in his life in meeting stress. And I was always amazed that 10 or 20 years later, they still carried the prescription in their wallet, would pull it out, now wrinkled in yellow, and say, you know, I look at this every day. Is this the kind of prescription you're thinking? What do you write on your prescription for emotions?
1: Well, the one thing that I've been known to write on a prescription pad is to laugh at least once a day. That is really get a good belly laugh. In some cases, I might write listen to joyful music in addition to good diet and exercise. And it's really to remind us that while nutrition is really important, as is activity, emotional health is pivotal in our ability to feel not only good from the standpoint of reducing stress, but also research suggests that positive emotions is an active process and that in of itself can induce effects directly on blood vessels.
0: Are you suggesting that not only is this a positive thing, but that actually it could reverse the disease process that already exists in patients?
1: You know, we'd like to believe that. I think uh, the stage of research at this point in time is a little too uh, premature, but certainly I think if a prospectively, a well-designed study done over time can do some of these measurements with a sufficient number of individuals at risk, perhaps we may be able to see some changes in both cardiovascular events, for example, and other correlates, whether they're physiological or anatomic. But at this point in time, we don't have that kind of data.
0: Where do I go to get my humor fix? I, I could use a, a laugh periodically.
1: I think because laughter is so unique to an individual, in other words, what makes you laugh, Dr. Pickard is something different than what might make me laugh. And, and it's really identifying what brings this laughter on. And now when I'm talking about a laugh, I'm talking about something that's physiologic, something that you get a good belly laugh and you feel so good afterwards. We've all experienced this. It could be with a group of your friends. It could be with your loved ones. It could be with children. I get some of the heartiest laughs with my kids because they're so impromptu sometimes and unexpected. It could be watching your favorite sitcom. It could be just hanging out with a group of colleagues. So it's really what brings it on. Sometimes it's completely unexpected, but whatever it is, it should really be physiologic so that you either feel good, might bring a tear or two to your eyes. And we believe that is the active effect that has a beneficial impact on our blood vessels.
0: In your book, you talk about the various types of things we've learned in medical school about the endothelium and how it responds to stress. When we are experiencing humor, Are you able to measure a beneficial effect on my endothelium or my vessel stiffness, if you will?
1: Yes, well, we have. We and others have been able to do that. And so just as a little introduction, we got interested by first asking a group of subjects, actually patients who were post-MI or had some evidence of coronary disease, by giving them a questionnaire. This was a standardized questionnaire that asked how they would respond to certain situations that they may encounter in everyday life. One example might be if you went to a party and you saw somebody wearing the exact same clothing as you did, how would you respond? And it was a point scale of one to five. One, perhaps, you would not find it funny to five, you would laugh heartily. And a number of these questions were asked, and patients with coronary disease compared to their spouses or other age-matched individuals did not find these situations to be particularly humorous. So uh, that raised the possibility that uh, either these individuals were born this way, or perhaps as a result of their disease process, they became a little bit more glass, half-empty, if you will, and, and not as... Uh, didn't embody the enthusiastic attitude and lifestyle. So we wanted to test this in an active way, and that's how we got into looking at the endothelium. There is a test that's been done for a number of years to non-invasively assess our endothelium, the inner lining of our blood vessels. So you could do this in the cath lab, which had been done previously, where you can inject acetylcholine, for example, and under normal conditions, a healthy blood vessel with a normal endothelium would dilate. However, there is evidence of disease. You have a paradoxical vasoconstriction effect. Well, it turns out that when some of these studies were done asking to subtract 100 from 7 or 7 from 100 in a quick manner in the cath lab or doing a peripheral evaluation, you would find that the vessels constricted. And in fact, the vessels constricted at around the same level as somebody who did exercise but had underlying coronary disease. So you could actually see a, const- a vasoconstrictive effect in the coronary vessels and then extend it out to the peripheral circulation. So this test that looks at endothelial function non-invasively takes advantage of the fact that you could evaluate the brachial artery. So you put a blood pressure cuff up the upper arm or even lower arm, and you inflate that cuff up. And during that period of time where you keep it inflated, your vessels constrict. And then when you release the cuff, those 30 to 60 seconds afterward, the vessel dilates. And the health of the endothelium is really reflected by how well that vessel dilates over that 30 to 60 second span. In our studies, we showed the opening segment of the movie Saving Private Ryan, and we saw vasoconstrictive effect. After those 30 to 60 seconds upon which we open up the vessel or release the cuff, when we showed them movies to make them laugh, to make our volunteers laugh, we found just the opposite effect, that by and large, the blood vessel dilated. And so we've shown this, other groups have shown this as well. We now had the first inkling that you could have an opposing effect through positive emotions via laughter.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Reach MD, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining us today is Dr. Michael Miller, professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, and we're discussing his recent book, Heal Your Heart, The Positive Emotion Prescription to Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. Moving on, although laughter is certainly something that your book certainly describes, there are other things that make up a larger field, behavior cardiology. Could you briefly tell me what that field now entails?
1: Right. So this is one of the more recent subgroupings, if you will, of cardiology. Obviously, we have interventional cardiology. We have various segments of non-invasive cardiology, of which preventive cardiology is pretty established. But within preventive cardiology, we like to appreciate the fact that stress and how we respond to stress is an important component to the way our heart would respond. And so this behavioral cardiology really captures the, the, the mind-heart connection, and there are emerging data in, in the field showing positive effects from yoga and biofeedback on blood pressure, pulse rate, effects on the autonomic nervous system with respect to heart rate variability. So it's, it's really an emerging field that takes advantage of the knowledge that emotions – are an important part of how we respond, uh, how we react, and not only uh, viscerally but also internally from the standpoint of cardiovascular risk.
0: One of the other things that you mentioned in your book, which was new to me and probably to our listeners, was the concept of NEAT, N-E-A-T, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Could you give us a little idea of what you mean? After reading this chapter, I thought I should become a fidgeter.
1: Well, you know, it, it is, you know, this is one, one of the things that I think a lot of thin people, uh, as we know in the book, a lot of thin people really appreciate because, and I have this habit as well, uh, that is moving around. So neat really represents activity that, is, uh, that occurs outside of your, your daily kinds of activity. So it's the things you're, you're basically doing without a known aerobic activity. What are you doing during the course of the day? And it's amazing how many calories one can burn by fidgeting or by moving around. And, and of course, now our data supports being sedentary as being a really important risk factor. Uh, And so I've been telling my patients for quite some time not to sit for more than 15, 20 minutes. Uh, Some folks are now getting these aerobic desks where they're working, are sitting on a bike and working and bicycling while they're working, or standing while they're working. I like to stand when I work. And just getting up and moving around, never being immobile if you don't have to for more than a few minutes, just being active all the time. And you could burn three, four, 500 calories a day.
0: So much of the stress in our lives has to do with relationships, marital relationships, loss of a loved one, becoming caregivers. With office visits becoming shorter and shorter, are we really preparing our medical students to delve into the whole subject of stress and what is going on in our patients' lives, rather than focusing always on the numbers.
1: Right. You know, Maurice, this is is such an important component, and, and this is really what we try to bring out in the book, and that is we do not educate our medical students, nor do we prepare them sufficiently. For these types of uh, far-reaching parts of their training, that uh, and in fact, I've had so many patients over the years come to me and say, you know, I know you're all pressed for time, but it doesn't really take a whole lot to just show the patient that you really care. Ask them, and I picked this up when I was a kid because our family doctor would want to know just one or two personal things that he wrote down. He must have written down because he seemed to know what was going on in our lives, and and so I've taken up that habit. and It doesn't take a lot, you know. I know, for example, a patient may have said on their last visit that they were going on a trip. So I just jot that down and say, how was your trip? When I see them next time, and say, oh, you remembered. And what's amazing is that when you make that connection to show that you have some interest in that patient's life, they really seem to say, wow, this physician really cares about me, as opposed to just feeling like it's more of a mechanical visit. So even if you do have 10 minutes, it doesn't take a whole lot to just try to find out, get a piece of information that you could show that you really know the patient.
0: It's interesting you mention it because they've studied what a good communicator is as far as a doctor goes and what time it takes to be a good communicator, the difference between a good and a bad communicator. It's 45 seconds. It's often the feeling of his hand isn't on the doorknob. He actually is sitting down saying, tell me whatever you want to tell me, I'm here. Your book really opens up this whole area for us. I really enjoyed talking with you today, and I thank you very much for being a guest with us
1: much. It's been a pleasure.
0: I think it's probably time for us to begin to look up from our computer keyboards and hear what our patient's stress is in their lives. This may be as important as the cholesterol number in determining whether they will have coronary artery disease or not. Thank you for joining us. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard, and if you've missed any of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download this podcast and many others in this series.